Thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections. Today's episode is joined by Christy Onoda, who lets us in on her journey being a lawyer, being a jumper, and owning Caldecott Stables in Briones, California. Enjoy. Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and when I was a little kid, like a lot of little kids, I loved horses and told my mom that that I wanted to take riding lessons. But I was five years old and the place where she had talked to about taking lessons, they said that you had to be six. So I waited an entire year to take my first lesson and it was torture. And finally, after my sixth birthday, I got to start taking lessons. It was at a small barn called Marywood outside of Dallas and they did low level eventing. Cool. So they only jumped up to maybe about three feet and it was great, it was wonderful. They had 50 horses, probably about 50 horses that all lived together out in a huge field. And they were every breed under the sun, every type of pony, they had thoroughbreds, Arabians, literally everything. So I got to take a lot of lessons on a lot of different horses. Was it like whatever horse is closest yes. to the fence you got to ride that day? <laughs> kind of like that. You would sign up for lessons and different horses were assigned to different skill levels and abilities. Yeah. But I attribute so much of my riding knowledge and ability to riding a million different types of horses, different personalities, different athleticism, spooky, non-spooky, in front of the leg, behind the leg, would buck you off, all of the, all of those horses. Yeah, all the traits. Exactly. Totally. So I rode there from when I was six to when I was 12. So six years, at least my first pony and then leased my first horse, bought my first horse, which was a quarter horse, a quarter horse for eventing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Low level eventing. I loved him and that was back when you would wear uh, brightly colored chaps with fringe. So I had navy blue chaps with green fringe and I thought I was the coolest mm-hmm. person alive with my Troxel helmet and my race cap over the helmet. Yep. It was a blast. But when I was 12 years old, I don't, I know my mom came to me and said, I've been talking to a trainer and we're gonna go out and meet him and he's going to watch you ride and see if you'll fit into his program. And I had no idea what she was talking about, why we were moving barns. And the reason we were moving barns is we were moving to an A-show hunter jumper barn. Mm. Um, And she had been told by a friend that if you wanted to advance your riding, this was the right thing to do. And we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Completely different worlds. (laughs) Oh. A hundred percent. It was my sister, my mom, and I were cool. obsessed with horses. We uh, we moved there, and I was there until I left for college. I started off in the hunters, so we bought a hunter, and my budget was very, very, very small for the hunter-jumper world. Mm-hmm. And we found a horse that was very talented, but absolutely insane. So he either dragged me by the stirrup and bucked me off, or we won everything. And it was a it was a test of riding and a test of desire because I really wanted to be competitive and just yeah. couldn't afford that, that type of horse. Yeah. Well, and so, it worked for some some days. It did work. <laughs> it worked. We we went through the junior hunters, and when we when we did the hunters, we were first in the state, first in the zone. We crushed it, but I also got hurt a lot. Yep. <laughs> I dropped the hunters pretty quickly. I I did the junior hunters, and my trainer told me what we need to do for you is we're gonna put you in the big egg and then move to the jumpers. We found a horse on the internet and he thought it was crazy. He said, we don't sell horses on the internet. We sell them through people we trust. Mm -hmm. And my mom said, but we can afford this horse and it's in Michigan. (laughs) It's in Michigan. (laughs) It's in Michigan. So we flew to Detroit and we tried this horse. 
yeah, he took me all the way to through the Grand Prix. Cool. I moved to Virginia for college. I studied psychology and after college I went and got a master's in psychology in Boston. And then I worked for a juvenile court outside of Boston doing the psyche valves mm. and realized I did not want anything to do with being a psychologist that I wanted to be a lawyer. So changed paths and went to law school. How long were you doing that before you're like, I can't? Very quickly. Very I did quickly. that for a year. Yeah. And applied to law school during that year. Cool. Good for you. And then how was law school for you? I absolutely loved it. And I know I'm probably one of very few people that say that, but I loved it. I loved law school. It was very hard. It was exhausting, but being a lawyer is what my mind was meant to do, I think. Yeah. The way lawyers think, that's that's how my brain works. And in law school, did you know what type of lawyer you wanted to be already? No, I thought, and I know this sounds weird, but I thought I wanted to be a tax attorney. Hmm. And I thought the tax law was, was fascinating. But after I took criminal law, I was sold. I loved criminal law. And I've been a prosecutor, a career prosecutor, my whole legal career. So how was the, like, passing the bar for you and how scary was that? And... Oh, it's, it's terrible. Ask any lawyer, it's a nightmare. Studying yeah. for the bar is a nightmare and then taking the bar is a nightmare. And then you have to wait five months for your results. Yeah. Did you pass the first time? I did. Oh, wow. Fortunately. Good for you. Thank you. I started working for the California Attorney General's office post-bar, which is during the, that time after you've taken the bar and you're waiting for your bar results. Oh, cool. And so I worked for them, and then once I found out I had passed the bar, they hired me as a Deputy Attorney General, which is not very common straight out of law school. Most people go and practice for a while, and then they join the Attorney General's office. Okay. But I started right after, so I've been with them the entire time. That's super cool. Yeah. So while you were at law school, what was your horse life? like I had zero horse life so when I left for college my family sort of abided by an old Texas way of life which is when you turn 18 you go out into the world and figure it out on your own so huh. I uh, had no money I had I had nothing um, most don't have money at 18 right exactly <laughs> uh, so horses were, were off the table uh, I was out of the question did and you sell the horse that you had? I actually gave him to a university to use for their college program. Oh, cool. I had it originally intended on selling him to somebody, but when I realized that they wanted to put him back in the Grand Prix, I thought if he left my hands, someone was going to run him into the ground, and I loved him too much for that. Yeah. So instead of selling him for money, I decided that putting him in that program would have led to a much happier life. Yeah. He got to live in a big green pasture in Virginia, so much more ideal for him. Yeah, that's awesome. All throughout college slash law school, all of that kind of journey, you didn't have horses at all. Didn't did you no. miss them? Did you think about them? I thought about it all of the time. All of the time. To be honest, I I think I did want a little bit of a break because when I wasn't a teenager I didn't do the normal teenage thing. I was on the road. I was at a horse show every weekend. And it was it was wonderful. I got to compete at, at really cool shows. I went to Young Riders. I did the big Grand Prix. But that was my whole life. I didn't do any of that stuff that normal teenagers do. And so when I went to college, I wanted to know what it was like to be a kid, <laughs> to be normal, yeah. um, to, to go to parties and to hang out with people and not 
be waking up at five every morning and, yeah. and doing that. And ironically, I actually ended up still doing that because I played basketball in college. So I was still waking up at five, but it was something different at least. Yeah. And, and then after college, I wanted to travel. I wanted to, to do other things, but I missed it. I, I dreamt of horse shows every night for three years. When did you say this is enough? I need, you know, this needs to be in my life again. Well, I was an attorney in San Diego and had to go to a function somewhere in North County, San Diego. Uh, and I never went to North County, I worked downtown. And I got in my car and I drove past the Del Mar Horse Park hmm. and just just happened to be driving past and I noticed it was a hunter jumper show and pulled off the highway. I couldn't help it. And the person <laughs> who was in the car with me had to suffer through me taking them to every ring and explaining what the adult hunters were versus the meter 20 jumpers versus this versus that uh they were my captive and i had to <laughs> and i told them about all of it and and i was fascinated because it had been over a decade since i'd been to a horse show and so much had changed fashion had changed horse oh, yeah. breeding had changed the way people were riding some uh, just so many things had changed and i felt like a martian in a time capsule yeah and so i looked at it all and i just couldn't believe it but what what brought me back to horses truly was that my ex and I wanted to go on a trip to South America. And where we were going, they had a program only for advanced riders. And the program was basically to ride in the Andes Mountains on horses. But you had to be... You had to know what you were doing. You had to know what you were doing. And I said, I want to do this. I absolutely want to do this. And you need to learn to ride. You have two years. We're putting you in lessons. I decided I'd finally gotten to a place out of law school in my career where I could afford to ride again. So I decided to get a horse and I would just ride and get myself back in shape and he would take lessons for the trip. And that's when I made a very strange decision, which I don't think a lot of people understand, but I bought a green broke Frisian. And the reason why is because when I left the hunter jumper world, I was jumping huge Grand Prix. It was, the pressure was astronomical. Yeah. Uh, and I remember being 18 years old and sitting there at a horse show and my my mom told me if you don't place in this Grand Prix we can't go to any more shows this season because we you can't afford it you know I I had to win for the entry fee for the next entry fee and I remember sitting there and thinking I couldn't remember the last time I had been on a horse and I had had fun there was a lot of pressure and and I just couldn't remember the last time I had fun. And I remember thinking that, when was the last time I had fun? Mm. And so when I got back into horses, I was so terrified that I, I'm so competitive. And I knew that if I got any horse with athletic ability, a warm blood, even an off the track thoroughbred, a dressage horse, a jumper, anything, I would go full steam ahead and be competitive. And I wanted to stop myself. A Frisian might do that. And that's what it was. I thought, I thought this horse can't jump. So it would force me to focus on horsemanship and focus on, on enjoying being around horses again yeah. and prevent me from becoming competitive. How interesting. Um, I wanted to remember what it felt like to be at the barn where I grew up at, where I was excited just to hold a curry comb mm -hmm. and to get the mud off of their bodies. And I hadn't felt that in so long, being at that level of competition. When you were at that level, you weren't doing a lot of the grooming or anything yourself anymore? No, and it made sense at that point because you're riding so many horses per day and mm -hmm. you're constantly traveling and you're doing something at such a high level that you need professional help. 
but then you're not doing the little stuff. You're not picking hooves anymore. You're not wrapping legs anymore. You're not checking in with the horse's yeah. mental you're state a, that day. Exactly. You're a pilot first and foremost. And even though I had this Frisian and it was so bizarre because here I am a jumper rider uh, riding this green broke Frisian. The Frisian is, is what brought me to meet Nick, my hmm. husband, Nick, who's a dressage trainer. I saw him riding at the barn where I was boarding in Del Mar and I thought that he was the most talented rider I had ever seen in my life, which is saying something. I've seen a lot of riders. <laughs> and I saw him riding and I just stopped. You also probably thought he was attractive. He was attractive. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But uh, but no, I just, I thought he was, I thought he was so talented and saw him ride and thought, I need to learn from this person. And I actually decided to pick up dressage just to learn from Nick. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I decided at that time to become a more serious dressage writer. Learning from Nick was an entirely different situation than what I had ever known before. Yeah, and he's classical dressage. He is. Cool. So how long were you riding with Nick? What was that like? Well, I rode with Nick for a year with the Frisian. He tried to, well, he did. He helped me with the, with the Greenbroke Frisian. And then we decided that I should probably get something a little bit more athletic, get a warm blood or something that's more inclined to do dressage. And I was on board with that. So we went on a horse buying trip to Europe, which was kind of a dream come true for me. Because even though I had ridden nice horses before growing up, I had never, I'd never done a trip like that. I've never imported a horse before. Yeah. So this was, this was a dream come true. I, I was a self-sufficient adult with a good job and this was something on my bucket list. So we went to Europe and tried a lot of dressage horses and something just kept eating at me inside. And I just felt like I don't want to do dressage. Oh, interesting. I, I want to go back to the jumpers. The thing was, I liked dressage and I wanted to pursue it, but I only had the budget for one horse. So <laughs> if I bought a dressage horse, I was all in yeah. on dressage. And and I knew that if I did that, I was missing out on, on doing jumpers again. And uh, I told Nick that I wanted to jump, which I'm sure was very disappointing for him. So, mm -hmm. so I never ended up getting a real dressage horse. Did you get a horse on that trip? No. No. No, so Nick and I... Actually, so we fell in love, and and the love story—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but we fell in love, and we decided to quickly to be together, and then that we wanted to move up to the north to Norcal, and so we left Del Mar. So I didn't buy a horse on that trip, and I actually didn't buy a horse for a year. So I didn't have anything tried for a year. I sold the Frisian. And I didn't have anything to ride for a whole year, which was torture. So we own Caldecott Stables in the East Bay. We've owned it since the very end of 2019. So almost three years now. And as soon as we pulled in, I said, this is our home. This is it. You just had a feeling. I had a feeling we were supposed to be there. And being able to buy a horse property, um, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and finding something that, that you can't afford is really difficult. And so we moved up here for this property. So he left his training program and started over up here, huh? He did, and he had a lot of clients who absolutely adored him down there. And so it's tough, it's tough to say goodbye and come up here, but Nick has a wonderful reputation and, and people were definitely eager to learn from him. So it wasn't difficult for him to build a new clientele. When did Huey come into your life? Well, we put all of our money into the property 
and I squeaked out a horse budget and said that I, I wanted to look for a horse. You know, it had been a year and I had nothing to ride. A jumper. I wanted to buy a jumper. Yes. To Nick's dismay. So I, I was looking online. I saw a million videos, of course. You see 20 million videos. And I saw a picture of Huey and I just immediately, it sounds weird, I'm not a very spiritual person, but I just felt like I knew that's my horse. Hmm. And I was so skeptical of that feeling and I watched the videos. He had show videos and schooling videos, um, confirmation videos. And he, it seemed too good to be true. And I figured it probably was, because it usually is. So I kept looking at other horses and kept just coming back to him and back to him over the course of a couple of weeks. And finally I said to Nick, I contacted the seller and said, I, tell me everything. And I, I said to Nick, We've, we have to go try this horse. And we used all of our airline miles to get a flight the following day. And we flew to Amsterdam. And I went out and tried the horse. He had already passed the vet check, by the way. We had looked at x-rays, because I thought, that's the other shoe that's gonna drop. Yeah, yeah. And he passed the vet check, and I couldn't believe it. Everything kept going well. Yeah. And uh, so we went to Amsterdam, and I tried him, and and that was it. Was his name Huey? Yeah. No, his name was Hurricane. <laughs> Getting a jumper after so many years off was an interesting experience. Because for me, when I had been a jumper before in the Hunter Jumpers and doing the big Grand Prix and doing all the big stuff, I had a whole team and I was I was a young person. I was under the age of 18 and I had a fantastic trainer, you know, professional grooms, all, all of the things. And so getting a horse and being at home and not having a team, not having a trainer, doing it all myself was something very new for me. I had to create all of my own schooling exercises. I had to decide what I was gonna do with him every day. How long was it going well? How to change things? And at the beginning, and I had taken 10 years off, so I was terrified. I thought I should not be in charge of this. <laughs> I have no business being in charge of this. Um, I'm out of shape. This is a young horse. I have no trainer watching what I'm doing. And I had had someone hold my hand for so many years that I, I was just shell-shocked. And it was probably one of the best things I ever did. And I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. I, I was an advanced rider who at least was very capable mm -hmm. um, and had a, a lot of experience. But, but being forced to do that made me so aware of everything about my horse, about everything about his soundness, his ability, mm -hmm. his brain, his personality, my ability, his energy, everything. Yeah. And I also had an intimate involvement in in all of his health care, his horse care. Supplements, everything. Everything. Yeah. I, I knew everything about my horse and that was that was pretty great. And it's very different from what you were doing before, which is you wanted this. Yeah, I want. I, this is exactly what I wanted, and it mm -hmm. was the best of both worlds. I had, I had a horse that did the sport that I loved, but I found the joy in all of the little things. Mm -hmm. um, but at a certain point, I definitely needed some professional guidance, mm -hmm. and I worked with a trainer for a while who was great and who helped me a lot. Um, and after a year, I found I started training with my current trainer. Uh, Bert Much, who is who is an excellent rider and, and horse horseman, and it's absolutely been 
the best thing for me and my horse. How did you find him? Uh, through a friend. Okay. A friend of mine suggested him and, and I had of course heard of his name before. Um, he's a very well-known athlete in the sport. Mm -hmm. And my previous trainer actually told me that's an excellent choice. You should train with him because cool because he's very well respected. And you've been with him now? Oh, about nine months. Nine months, it hasn't yeah. been that long. It's, it's, uh, it's been interesting. So I'm the only one at my barn who jumps. Nick has his dressage program here. So all of our clients ride dressage and Nick trains them. And Nick has definitely helped me quite a bit. He's helped me with all sorts of issues and definitely has some oversight. But for the most part, I have been doing all of my training of Huey by myself. Uh, until I started training with a professional jumper trainer, and that was that was um, that was hard. <laughs> it was really hard, and it's still hard. But I think what's been great is taking lessons with different people and seeing their different approaches, and figuring out what actually works for me, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being put into a program and just having to accept what the person is telling you. Uh, at every show, I notice different people's styles. I notice what they're doing, how they're training their horse, what techniques they're using. And I specifically picked the trainer I work with now, Bert, because I approve of his techniques because he's an excellent rider and everything he does is intentional and ha is backed by a good reason. And above all else, he's a great horseman. And that makes all the difference, especially in the hunter-jumper world because I can't I can't say that every trainer in the hunter-jumper world is a good horseman, just like in any discipline. Yeah. Well, I do my own grooming now, which I never did growing up. I didn't have the time. And I, and I totally support the fact that professionals are riding eight horses a day. They need a lot of help because it's a full-time job grooming a horse and most people just don't have the time. I have made time for it because it's been important to me. And because I'm my horse's full-time groom at home. So, and I do get some help at home for sure, but I, I am his person. And so when I go to a show, I don't want to disrupt that by having somebody else caring for him. I mm -hmm. want to keep things the same. And I like to have some oversight and, and do it myself. It matters to me. So that's a big change. It's, it's exhausting doing all your own grooming at a show. Yeah. So something I like to ask is, you know, you talked a lot about your current situation and what you love about the hunter-jumper world, specifically the jumper world, is what you're in right now. What is something you'd like to see evolve or change within that world and how can you promote that change? There are a couple of things I think that I would love to see uh, change a little bit in the hunter-jumper world and I, and I understand why they got to this point. but. Being in that dressage world, even though I am not a dressage writer per se, but being in the dressage world and, and also being exposed to the eventing world because I've recently become really good friends with some eventers and I go and I hang out at their barn and I watch their program. I've noticed that dressage riders and eventers value their horsemanship equally with their ability to ride. And if you asked any client of ours at our barn or any of these kids at the eventing barns what grain their horse is eating or how to wrap a leg or why they're using the bit that they're using or how to give the horse a shot or any of those things they could tell you they know everything about their horse and their horse care and they can do it all themselves and i feel like in the hunter jumper world i see a lot less of that mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of emphasis placed on 
riding and less so on the horse care because they have wonderful staff and they're, they're on the, the road a lot. They go to a lot of shows and they need professional professionals to make sure that their horses are cared for well. Mm-hmm. And so they put their trust in those professional grooms, which in a lot of cases robs these kids or adults of that information. Mm-hmm. I think that if you went to a hunter jumper show and an amateur came out on the weekend to ride their horse and you said, do you know what your horse did on Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, and Thursday? What classes they rode in? Why? Mm-hmm. And were they lunch that morning? Were they given perfect prep? What grain were they on? Were they given magnesium? Any of that, they, they probably wouldn't know. Yeah. They wouldn't know how much, they wouldn't know why. I think that needs to change. I think there, there are some big differences between the hunter-jumper world and the world like dressage and even eventing. And one of those is that, and something I love about the hunter-jumper world is that they compete a lot. There are a lot of different divisions. They go to a lot of shows. They have a lot of, of, of big um, competitions. It's a very competitive sport. Uh, there's a lot of introversion and dressage, a lot of at-home training, which is great. It's a very different situation. And the hunter-jumpers, you're always on the road. They take winners off, of course, and they take, obviously, very good care of their horses, but they're always on the road, they're always at shows. And because of that, they need a lot of staff, they need a lot of help. If you go to a show on the weekend, let's say, you're an eventer, you do a three-day event, you're there for maybe three or four days, Uh, you can do your own grooming, you can do your own setup. It's a lot easier to do that. But when your teenagers have to go to school and your adult amateurs have to go into the city to go back to work, you need people to help you because they can't do it all themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that, it turned into having professional grooms that just do everything. And if you begin riding at a very competitive barn, sometimes you miss the horsemanship lessons and you miss learning how to do all of that yourself because someone else is always capable of of doing it better than you can when you don't know anything. Yeah. And if the custom becomes having the groom and the trainer know more about your horse than you do, Mm -hmm. it's just easier to continue that way. And unfortunately, I think that has bred a culture where hunter-jumper kids grow up knowing less horsemanship skills than the eventing kids and and the dressage kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would love to see that change. I understand why that is the case, because they're always on the road and they're always showing. But I think it does a disservice to them, because should they return to horses as an adult, they will find that they know very little about, about horse care. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing that I would love to see change, but I don't know if it, if it will. And I think that's the accessibility of the sport especially in the hunters. What I have seen is to be competitive on the A show circuit in the hunters, you have to spend a minimum of 150,000 on a horse, a minimum just to be in the ribbons. And I understand that this is a very athletic sport and they want horses that have great confirmation, that are athletic, all of the things. Um, but that makes the sport completely inaccessible. And it is possible to purchase less experienced horses and to bring them up and to train them yourself but that takes a very advanced rider and and a lot of these new riders just don't have that ability so a trainer does that they buy a young horse they import them from europe and they flip them for three four times what they purchased them for so and i understand that they have to make a living but that is limiting the sport to only the super wealthy i think a big issue is that there are a lot of trainers in every discipline. 
But in the hunter jumper world, there are sure there are sure a lot of them, and some of them are fantastic riders, excellent horse people. They know what they're doing, and they're at the top of the sport for sure. And I think that if the people who are maybe new, newer trainers to the sport, and maybe they don't have the big ticket clients that can afford to buy the really talented Grand Prix horse or maybe the really fancy Derby hunter, if those people were better educated on being horsemen, horsewomen, and uh, and in correct riding, then there would be more of a chance of being able to buy maybe a younger import. Up and comer. Up and comer. (laughs) for a client and helping them, someone who might not be able to spend six figures on a horse, and helping turn those horses into a horse that can compete at the A shows mm-hmm. in the hunter jumper world. But I, I definitely have seen a lot of people who have become trainers who grew up in the hunter jumper world and they were never taught proper horsemanship. And so when they themselves became a professional, they're missing a large part of their education and it becomes a cycle. The first year that we owned this business was it was so much work and it's still a lot of work but it is so worth it we have renovated our place and put in turnouts and international quality footing and a round pin and fixed all sorts of things uh, which i attribute mostly to nick he's been fantastic because i have to be a lawyer during the day (laughs) yep and and then i'm doing my own grooming and trying to train my horse and so it's been a lot of work but somehow we've managed to make it work and it's been great. I mean, having a partner who is an amazing equestrian is personally a dream come true (laughs) to me. He understands. He understands. Yeah. And we, you know, putting our blood, sweat and tears into something that your partner wholeheartedly understands is, is everything. Yeah. Has he ridden Huey yet? He has ridden Huey a couple of times, but it's a very different type of of ride and not that I mean Nick is fantastic anytime actually the couple of times that he's jumped on Huey I think I cried because <laughs> he looks so much better with Nick than oh, no. with me and it's so hard to see that yeah it's <laughs> it's hard to see that but of course they are because Nick's amazing did you cry because your horse looked so good or because of the comparison and you feel like you can't get him to look like that Oh, because immediately you realize that it's you. (laughs) That any problems that I had, you know. uh, Oh, he bows through my right aids. Oh, oh no, he's perfectly fine with Nick. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's me. That's funny. (laughs) I am the problem. (laughs) So I know that you've shown Duende, Nick's mom's horse. Was that your decision? How did that come up for you to do a dressage show not too long ago? You know, I think what happened was I moved Huey up to the meter 30 jumpers and... I, when you start jumping bigger jumps, your legs need to be in better shape. And I do the Peloton and I do bar classes, and, but it's not the same as riding horses. So I asked Nick, I said, if you need any horses in the barn to be ridden, just just let me know. And so I think that's how it began because Duende needed some, some extra dressage work. And so I started riding him and then I rode him enough where Nick said, I think he needs, he had never, Duende had never been to a show before. And he said, I think you should take him and give him a good experience. It was my first dressage show and, uh, but I don't get show nerves because I'm so used to competing. But yeah, it was, it was really fun actually. And what did you score? Uh, we got a 69, which, which in the hunter jumper world sounds bad, but it's actually a very, <laughs> a very excellent score in dressage. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, over the moon. It yeah. Was, it was great. 
That's cute. And he did okay for his first show? He was a little rock star. Cool. Who are some of your current and or past inspirations? I know this is going to sound really silly and cliche, but the people I look up to the most right now in the equestrian world are actually the two people that I seek advice from the most, which are Nick and my trainer, Bert, because I, I hold them in the highest esteem. And I wouldn't seek out training if it wasn't making my horse better. Or you or better. Me, or me better. It's hard to find somebody who is truly excellent. Uh, they're out there for yeah. sure. And I found two of them. So I very much respect them and, and uh, look up to them. Do you think it's a coincidence that they're both male? No. And you know, it's funny. Nick will be the first to tell you that he thinks that there is this bias where people look at male trainers and, and immediately think that they're more talented just because they huh. happen to be male and that there are plenty of fantastic hunter jumper trainers and dressage trainers who get less of the pedestal treatment because they're not male. But despite their gender, they still just are my role models. They're fantastic horse people. That's cool. And riders. Where would you like to see your show career going? We did the we did the meter thirty fives. He was excellent. It was double clear. He was a very good boy. You know, because I was so competitive when I was younger, and that's all it was about for me. What it's all about for me now is just to have fun. And it sounds cliche, but I finally figured out how to have fun, and that is truly in not caring what other people think. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy to not care about the level that you're at when you've done the big Grand Prix because, mm -hmm. because you've been there and you've done that. Um, so you're not, you don't need to prove anything to anyone. And I just want to be at a horse show and enjoy being there. And I don't care if I'm doing the 0.75s or I'm doing the meter 45. I just want to have fun. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, cool. That's very inspiring. I appreciate you being on. And Thank hopefully you. I'll chat with you again. Absolutely. <laughs>Thank you so much for tuning in to Stable Connections. This is your host, Shauna Burke. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, like, comment, share on both Instagram and Facebook. And if you or someone you know wants to chat with me, don't forget to email stableconnections.sb at gmail.com. New episodes will come out every Monday morning starting January 2022. See you next week.